Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. I am thrilled that this week's sponsor is Audible. Audible, if you don't know, is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers to celebrity memoirs, news, business, and self-development. Every month, members get one credit to pick any title, two Audible originals from monthly selection, access to daily news digests, and guided meditation programs. They also have Everything like stories.audible.com, Audible Sleep. They have expanded Audible Originals. I recently did an Instagram Live with Cheryl Strait about her Amazon original story called This Telling, which you should definitely listen to. And it's awesome. It's just great. I use Audible all the time. Every time I take a drive, I download another book, whether it's Jill Biden's book to prepare for her episode or... Um, what did I do recently? Um, Kim Brooks, I just in, uh, downloaded Small Animals, uh, Parenthood in the Age of Fear. That was great. I listened to Peace Medi's book, um, which was fantastic. Um, oh, it was called His Only Wife. Anyway, Audible is great. I definitely would not be able to keep up with all the reading that I do without it. And you get to use my special code, audible.com slash Zibby. And uh, it's so audible.com slash Zibby, and you get a free month of Audible. So go check it out and use it wisely and use the time while you're walking your dog. Oh, that's another time I listen to Audible is when I'm walking the dog across the park. I listen to Jenna Bush Hager's whole memoir doing that um, and many others. So um, thank you, Audible, for being a sponsor. And everybody else, go to audible.com slash Zibby and download a book on me. Susie Yang is the author of White Ivy, which is her first novel. Susie was born in China and came to the United States as a child. After receiving her doctorate of pharmacy from Rutgers, she launched a tech startup in San Francisco that has taught 20,000 people how to code. She studied creative writing at Tin House and Sackett Street and has lived across the United States, Europe, and Asia, and now resides in the UK. Welcome, Susie. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Hi. <laughs> it's good to be here. <laughs> Hello again. Hello again. I know we've just been chatting now. Now it's official though, so we can officially (laughs) greet each other. Make it sound very polished and awesome. (laughs) Very fun to be here. Okay, White Ivy, congratulations on this amazing novel. So great, so captivating from the very beginning. This main character you've created, I feel like I could spot her on the sidewalk at this point. You made her so real. And like, even the way you describe her posture, the way she walks, like everything about her seems so real. But now, of course, I have to like keep my belongings close so she doesn't swipe anything. (laughs) So tell me about, well, first of all, tell listeners what White Ivy is about. Yeah, so White Ivy follows the character of Ivy Lynn from when she's 14 to 27. She falls in love with the son of a state senator when she's a child, and they reconnect again as an adult. And the entire arc of the story is Ivy trying to capture Gideon's heart and marry into his very patrician wasp family. It's mostly set in Boston, but there are parts of her life where she 
goes to New Jersey and she spends a summer in China. And all of these experiences kind of inform her worldview and leads her to make the decisions that she makes in the book as she strives to kind of get what she wants in life. Oh my gosh, the scene where you have her entire family like storm into Gideon's house oh. on, on that first sleepover and they're all like waiting on the couch and her brother's like, eating pancakes and (laughs) like it was so awkward and tense I just was like recoiling inside myself it was like oh my gosh this poor girl I think awkwardness is an underused emotion in books (laughs) because it's such a common it's such a common emotion in real life right like secondhand embarrassment Yeah, yes, very visceral. So true. How did you come up with this story idea? Yeah, so when I decided to write the novel, I gave myself a year to finish the complete draft. And the first thing I had to decide was what kind of book did I want to write? And I've always been drawn to anti-hero characters. So think Becky Sharp or Scarlett O'Hara or Tom Ripley. So I knew that I wanted to create pretty unique, kind of strong female character who would go to great lengths to get what she wanted. And that would obviously involve you know, moral compromises and manipulation. And then the first sentence of the book, Ivy Lynn was a thief, but you would never know it to look at her. That came to me kind of out of the blue. And then once I had that, the entire arc of her story came to me at once. So that hasn't changed from the very first sentence. I always kind of saw the whole vision of the book and a lot of the revisions and the different drafts was just making sure that it was, you know, pleasurable read and getting all of the details correct and the sequence of events correct. Wow. Well, Go back to when you decided to take a year to write a novel. How did that fit into your, I mean, my life plan. how did that fit into your life? Yeah. Where did that come from? Yeah. Okay. I think the short story is that I've always, I've always written for fun. It was always a hobby of mine, but I mean, I come from a Chinese American background. And so my parents, you know, wanted me to be one of three professions, right? A doctor, a lawyer, maybe an engineer. And so I always thought of writing as a hobby. I never thought of it as a career path, but I was running my own tech startup in San Francisco for around three years at that point. And I think something in me just changed. I think it was, I call it my quarter life crisis. (laughs) Like, wait a second, is this really what I want to be doing for the rest of my life? So, and I'd always been trying to write a novel just in my free time, but I mean, classic problem is I could never finish one. I mean, I have a hundred chapter ones, you know, on my computer. So I thought if I don't give myself that pressure to say, let me just put an arbitrary deadline on this to, to prove to, to myself I could do it, then I'll never, ever do this. And I think I just, you know, decided to, to, to make that time to do it, to see if I could. So you're very young then. I'm, 30, you I'm 32. Like- uh, at the time, I think okay. I was 20, 26, 27, something like that. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. That's particularly amazing because this book is so good. I feel like sometimes you need more life experience to really inform a book, but maybe that's what I just fool myself to think myself. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a bit of imagination. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Okay. Maybe that's part of it. Tell me a lot of the book was talking. So Ivy grew up at first with her grandmother in China and then tragically almost got sent across the world in an airplane by herself to reunite with her parents who she didn't even remember and who she was raised by until her grandmother eventually meets them there. So a lot of this is about a sense of place and identity Mm -hmm. and belonging and how out of place she feels in America. And like, even with her own family, she never really ever feels comfortable. Tell me about that sense. Is that something you are familiar with? Do you have family who's like first gen, like, does that come from a personal place or just like a societal imaginative place? No, that's actually, that's super personal. I mean, even, you know, I, I was born in China and I came to the U.S. when I was five, but even despite that, I've moved around so much growing up. My dad, you know, changed jobs a lot. And so 
I think I was talking to somebody about this and I think I'd gone to eight different schools before, before college even. And so that feeling of always entering a new environment and, you know, observing people or adapting and always kind of looking at the scene through an outsider's point of view, that's something that's very natural to me. And I'm really drawn to that in books as well. So I love books that always examine, you know, a group or a club or society from the point of view of somebody who doesn't belong there, because that's the point of view that I'm most comfortable with. So it was really natural for me to kind of structure the story of what Ivy around that perspective. And of course, yeah, I mean, Ivy's experiences also kind of inform her feeling of being an outsider, right? She, you know, goes to this very private school that's full of really wealthy people, but she's not wealthy herself. And then there's the fact that she's an immigrant. So all these factors also contribute to her feeling of wanting to belong and wanting to understand what values her classmates have and trying to absorb them as her own. The way that you wrote about her first immersion into this new lifestyle when she's walking around Gideon's house, not to keep coming back to the scene, but, and just looking as he is casually like, that's our mm-hmm. summer cottage. And this is, you know, and her just being like, what? <laughs> it's, it's neat to see her. You could like <laughs> yeah, feel yeah. her, her eyes widening and, and all of that. So. So what does it feel like to have this book coming out into the world? Like this is, are you so excited about it? Like what is it, how does it feel? Honestly, it's just been such a strange year. Like I feel like in normal times, it would be very much, you know, you need to be out about the world and I could, you know, hold the book and see people in real life. But I don't know, this year has been so strange. So even all the feedback I'm getting, it really is just through the internet, right? Or Zoom calls and things like that. So it feels in a way... I'm isolated from the effects of it having come out. I mean, it hasn't come out yet, but just from the early readers um, and reviewers. So in a way, I'm glad because of that, because I feel like it makes it feel less distracting. It, you know, it's like there's, you know, people who are like, I read it, I really liked it. And that's been amazing. But in a sense, my life is still very much, you know, me going in my pajamas to, to write book two and like taking these calls with you to talk about the book, which is always fun. So, yeah, I feel Wait, like- what is, to- tell me, I didn't mean to cut you off. I wanted to hear about book two, like right away. So oh. <laughs> I had to interrupt you. Yeah, I'm sort of like two thirds in. So I feel like I'm not going to describe it really well. I'm still in the weeds, but essentially it kind of talks about the same themes. Like I realize I'm still really interested in the theme of reinvention. It's about a couple in this so spans around a decade and it's set between US and Beijing. And it kind of tackles the Chinese entertainment industry. And it talks about people's different agendas. So those are the themes I find myself drawn to, this constant, you know, identity politics and comedy of manners and observing a strange society with an outsider's eye. Yeah, so that's I think that's the most big picture I can I can think about and, right now. And now you're an American living in London and also or in the UK and also temporarily in Florence. So you've continued to put yourself in these situations I know, where you are not <laughs> Disease. Might I point out to you that you have this issue? Just saying, you know. Yes. I always tell myself, yeah, I'm going to settle. I'm so tired of moving. I'm so tired of moving. I just want to settle down, but I seem unable to do that. Well, at least you, you know, you've come to a, a fragile piece with it, you know. <laughs> and it's good material if that's your central theme, you know, you're just getting more material. Yeah, I tell myself that it's all, it's all good for the experiences, right? <laughs> yeah. Wait, go back for a second to after you finished writing White Ivy and finished tinkering. How long did that process take? And then I want to hear about like how you sold it, the publishing part of it. I feel like that was really where I learned to become a writer. Like when I wrote the first draft, I truly had no idea about, I didn't get an MFA. I don't have writer friends. Like it felt 
Like I was just writing it for myself to say I could do it. I had no idea how it worked even. And when I look back now, I'm like, oh God, that first draft was horrible. <laughs> but I remember, so I went to this conference called Tin House and that was in, so it was in July. And around that time, it was in the year of me writing the first draft. So I had around probably like 80, 70, 80% of the first draft done. And they had agents come to Tin House and actually sat down next to Jenny, who is now my agent, but it was completely coincidental. And she was like, oh, what are you working on? And I kind of, I think I pitched my book as an Asian American, like Edith Wharton type book or something like that. And she's like, great, send it to me when you're done. And that really like lit the fire, you know, under my butt. I was like, wow, there's somebody waiting to read it. And she's, you know, an agent. So around October, actually it was Halloween. So a few months later, I sent her the complete first draft and I had done my research, right? It was like what to expect. And I assumed that it would be, we'd go back and forth on revisions, but she read it in one day and she emailed me back the next day and was basically like, oh my God, can we meet up? I was living in New York at the time. She's in Brooklyn. And she's like, I'd love to represent you. And she's like, and I think it's ready to be sold. (laughs) What? Yeah. And I was like, I don't know about this. Like, are you lying to me? Can I trust you? But she was basically like, yeah, I think it's ready. I can't think of any revisions that I would want you to make. And so I trusted her and then she, so that was October, so that was November. And then, yeah. And then she sold the book, I think in December. So a month, one month later. Yeah. That's awesome. So that's how it was sold. But the next part is I think where I actually learned how to become a real writer. So I went through six drafts of edits with my editor, Mary Sue at Simon and Schuster. And wow, I learned (laughs) I learned essentially craft, you know, everything before that was just almost instinct and fumbling my way and kind of throwing words at the, at the wall and seeing what's stuck. But through the different drafts, I feel like I actually learned, you know, why something was working and my writing got better. So I have to say that those two years, so it felt like I wrote it very quickly, you know, if I say one year, but actually I consider it really a three-year project because it took two years of edits after with my editor. Wow. All right. So now we don't feel as, as shamed that you just whipped this thing out. No, that. I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed. Well, like in the first draft, I'm like, okay. <laughs> no, stop. No, really. <laughs> and how do your parents who wanted you to be a doctor, lawyer, or engineer feel about having a novelist as a daughter? It's so funny. So when I decided to do the one year to write the book, I actually didn't tell anyone about it except for my husband. I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. Like, you know, and he was like, I support you, obviously. But I didn't tell my friends. I didn't tell my family. We were still running the company. And it wasn't until I think I got my agent that I told my family. I was like, oh, guys, you know, I signed with an agent. And they were like, what does that mean? I explained everything to them. And then when the book sold, I think that's when it became real. And I remember my dad being, I mean, of course they were like, can we read it? Can we read it? And I was like, no, not until it's totally done. But I think he, I think his first question was something like, so are you going to like write books, like more books? <laughs> like, or is this just a one-time thing that you like wanted to, you know, just try out? That was really funny. And then when I actually had the complete, like the production copy that everybody's reading now, I sent it over to him and he was like giving me real-time feedback on all the chapters and things like that. So that was definitely an experience. (laughs) Never thought I'd have my parents read like a sex scene (laughs) that I wrote. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Not high on the list when you're growing up, you know, imagined activities. (laughs) (laughs) Is your husband a senator's son or did you have to do some research into (sighs) making that, depicting that character? Definitely did research. I actually hate research. So I'm like an extremely lazy researcher. So my copy editor had a lot of work. She would like fact check things for me and be like, I think that was actually one of the issues. It was like, there was a difference between a state senator versus, you know, just a senator. And so had to change a lot of the details, a lot of Googling. Yeah. (laughs) And what was your tech company? What did it do? 
It was called BaseRail, so actually taught people how to build web apps. So when I graduated from pharmacy school, I also was like, oh, I hate pharmacy school. I don't want to be a pharmacist. So I actually moved out to San Francisco at the time to work in tech. And I ended up starting a company um, because I taught myself how to code. And then I understood the resources that were available. So then I thought these aren't that great at the time. And so, yeah, I started a company that essentially, it, 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 they do videos. We did videos that teaches people how to build things like Etsy or Yelp so people could launch their own startups. So cool. <laughs> wow. Well, now I'll have to go and do that on the side. I always am like frustrated. I know how to do my website is on Squarespace. And so I've learned how to use that. Yeah. But sometimes I'm like, oh, but I'd really rather, like, if only I knew how to do this, like, I wouldn't have to wait for someone else. Yeah. You know, like, I like to do everything myself. Yeah. But yeah, my daughter does coding classes now, but I am, I've like missed the coding boat, I think, but maybe in a, a site like yours would have helped. But <laughs> I, well, not anymore. I think there's a way better ones now. I think this site, yeah. it's okay. still out, but it's so out of date. Okay. All right. Well, I'll put that on, on the back burner of things I'm going to teach myself to do these days. <laughs> oh my gosh. What advice would you give to aspiring authors? Oh my gosh, I don't know if that I'm qualified to give advice to aspiring authors. You're qualified. You you count. I'm you are an author and you sold a book. <laughs> I'm trying to think about what really helped me get through, you know, just the slumps. I think one thing that really helps me get through, because I'm the sort of person where, like, I, I always need to understand the vision of what I'm writing because that's what pulls me through the bad writing. And also when you, know, you get tired of certain things. So I would say the advice was, I read it somewhere, which is um, write something only you can write. And that was really, like, that was such a touchstone for me because I'd always think, is this the most interesting thing? You know, is this worth writing? Is this, you know, going to be interesting to anyone but me? <laughs> so, you know, with, on, during all those times of doubts, I would always think, okay, but at least nobody else can write this specific book, you know, with this specific vision. And that made it worthwhile for me personally. So I'd say that one really got me through a lot of the hard times. And I think the other advice actually came from my agent, which was just to think about writing as you know, like the long term as a marathon, not like a sprint. I think I have a really, I tend to work in really intense spurts where I just want to get it done. And so I really, I have a really impatient personality. So for me, it's like, oh, calming down and looking at it from a long-term point of view, you know, what kind of stories am I going to be interested in writing? What ideas do I have in jotting those down? So kind of not being in such a rush and not giving myself so much pressure to, you know, have it perfect the first draft or the first time around and to kind of look at it like a marathon. Good advice. Excellent. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for chatting about your book and for the great book and the great read. And, you know, I, I have expected you to look like your character, but you don't at all. You know, you're very pretty. And, thank you. Know. <laughs> One of the questions I always get from my friends is always like, oh, is that you on the cover of the book? You know, I'm like, no, clearly you don't know me that well. So <laughs> I actually haven't seen the cover yet because I read it online. Oh, I got okay. like the pre Yeah, when you, you know, see the, it. It's not me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. I'll tell you. Now I have inside information as to what you really look like. <laughs> All right. Well, I hope next time we see you or you'll probably be living in like five other countries and, you know, but maybe if you ever breeze through New York, I'll cross paths with you. <laughs> yeah, hopefully when all this is over. Yes, exactly. Thanks for having me. <laughs> all right. Thanks for coming. Bye. Okay. Good luck with lunch. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Audible for being this week's sponsor. Everybody go to audible.com slash Zibby and you get a month free of Audible on me. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 